0: It is great to be back here at Bayside. I was here a few years ago and it was a wonderful opportunity. And uh, I appreciate so much the partnership that we have forged and the ministry that we share together in bringing the message of the gospel to the Jewish people which is as controversial today as it was during the days of the Apostle Paul who whenever he went to a new city he experienced either a revival or a riot and sometimes both. And we still experience controversy and we still have opposition to the work of Jews for Jesus but by the power of the Holy Spirit we see that opposition melting under the conviction of God's work in the hearts of Jewish people. I can remember once in New York City, standing out on the street, something that we are still doing. Uh, Even through COVID, we've been able to be present and have a witness and a testimony on college campuses and around the globe. We're in 14 countries and uh, I was in New York and I was wearing a t-shirt. It was a beautiful sunny day, it said Jews for Jesus. Uh, we like people to know who we are and who we're for. And I was approached by a woman, well-dressed woman, in her late 60s at the time, and she was angry. And she began to yell at me and say, you should be ashamed of yourself. How can you do this? Do you know what you're doing? Does your mother know you're doing this? (laughs) And then she spat out words that cut like a knife. She said, you're trying to complete the work that Hitler began. And she rolled up the sleeve of her dress to show me numbers on her arm. You see, Ruth is a survivor of Auschwitz, of the Holocaust. And I understood her anger, and there was very little that I could say to her that day. So then imagine my surprise when several weeks later, during a Friday evening service at our Jews for Jesus office there in New York, who should come through the back door but Ruth? And I recognized her right away, but I couldn't quite place where we had met. So after the service, I approached her, and she reminded me where we had met. So I said, all right, Ruth, so what are you doing here today? And she said, well, I have an open mind. (laughs) And she did. And she kept coming back every Friday night, started coming to our Tuesday night Bible studies. And what a privilege it was for me one Friday evening to pray with Ruth to receive Jesus as her Messiah. Hallelujah. Now, how can something like that happen? How is it that somebody who is so bitter, so angry, so closed to this message of the gospel that they can open up to receive God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I'll tell you, it's because that same power, the power that raised up Jesus from the grave is active and at work in the world today. The Apostle Paul said concerning my Jewish people that if their rejection of Messiah be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And I want you to be encouraged that God is bringing life from the dead among Jewish people today. And for those who know the Lord and who love his appearing, this should be a sign of great hope and encouragement even for the times in which we are living. And I want to thank you for helping us to prepare the world for the coming of the Lord through the proclamation of the gospel to Jewish people. One of the ministries that you're involved in and supporting Chaim and Verid is a ministry which we call Love and Serve. We have three pillars of Jews for Jesus. Go and Tell, which is what I was doing when I met Ruth, come and see, which uh, is uh, evident that by, by the Bible studies and the high holiday services that we conduct in various places around the world where we invite Jewish people to come and see what it's like as Jews to follow the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and to see that there is a community of faith that they can find uh, encouragement, comfort, and learning and worship in. And so that Second pillar, come and see, is a vital part of our ministry. But that third pillar is love and serve. And we found that there are desperate needs around the world, and even more so as COVID hit Israel, that people were out on the streets homeless. And the Israeli government gave us the liberty, even though others were forced to shelter in place, we were able to go out with our food trucks and minister to those who were in need and even they gave us a list of some Elderly who were shut-ins, who couldn't get out to get the supplies they needed. And we were amazed that the government of Israel was giving Jews for Jesus lists of people to go and visit. And of course, every time we brought food packages, we would bring the gospel. And uh, there's an openness to Israel among Israelis now that we haven't seen in any time since perhaps that first century when those first Jews for Jesus were out preaching the gospel. But Vered Birnbaum has a very unique ministry in Israel and it is what we call uh, Beit Cham, which uh, means the warm house and it is where we uh, have a respite center for women from the streets who have been addicted and trafficked and uh, we have over the last year seen that become a real respite where Jewish women who are down and out and in need of help are coming to us and we uh, have them come, uh, with no strings attached. They are allowed to live in the home as long as they keep free of drugs and alcohol and as long as they attend the daily Bible study that we conduct there. And Verit is one who leads that Bible study. In the past few months, we've seen three of those ladies right off the streets come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. And similarly, the government of Israel social services often refers some of these ladies to us. And so it's an amazing thing what God is doing. And we want to encourage you to pray for our ministry uh, in all of these ways. Pray for the Bombs. I hope someday you'll have a chance to meet them in person. And uh, their testimony is a wonderful testimony, but they are part of about 200 missionaries around the world that is Jews for Jesus, proclaiming the gospel with a Jewish accent. (laughs) And you know, one of the interesting things about Jews for Jesus is that five times as many non-Jews come to faith in Christ through our ministry as do Jewish people. One time our founder was in a debate with a rabbi on the radio and the rabbi said, I know about you Jews for Jesus, you convert five times as many Gentiles as you do Jews. And Moise said to him, well, what do you want us to do, throw them back? <laughs> when you preach the gospel loud enough for Jews to hear, a whole lot of other folk listen in. And so as you think about supporting the ministry of Jews for Jesus and praying for us, we hope that you get the Jews for Jesus newsletter. We'll have a QR code up on the, on the screen here. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, go to our website and you can learn more about what we've been talking about here at Bayside for the last few weeks, which is important, and that is the festivals of Israel. And uh, before we get into that, I want you to know that you can go up to Lakewood, and uh, you can see a very unique group of people, and you'll see evidence of the festival we're going to be talking about today on the backyards, the front yards, and the porches of all the homes of this special group of people. And this is one prayer burden that i want to leave with you today a unique ministry that jews for jesus has started and we'll take a look at this video
1: they live in many major cities around the globe but remain one of the most unreached people groups in the world Haredim, ultra-orthodox jews They live in tight-knit neighborhoods and isolate themselves from the rest of society to remain faithful to the Torah. Haredi life is shaped by centuries of rabbinic law which instructs them in what they eat, how they wash their hands, and even which shoe to put on first. Strict gender roles define everyday life. Usually men spend their days studying Torah, while women earn money and care for their large families. Their community avoids outsiders. And because of a history of persecution and proselytism, they're especially wary of Christians. Still, a very few have encountered the gospel and come to believe in Jesus. They live as hidden believers within their community. If they tell anyone about their faith, they could lose their reputations, their livelihoods, and even their families. The Haredim are the most unreached of God's chosen people. They've been largely unknown, overlooked, and dismissed by believers as too difficult to reach. But they're not unseen by God. And God is doing something new. Believers have begun reaching out to love, serve, and pray for the Haredim. We need your prayer and support for this pioneering work. Will you help us reach them?
0: One of the resources that we've just recently created is a prayer guide for Christians to begin praying because we believe that this is the foundation for this audacious effort to reach out. And if you've ever wanted to do a prayer walk and not exactly sure where to go, you guys can go to Lakewood. It's not too far away. And I would encourage you maybe to take some time with a friend and go and just walk the streets where the Haradim near you are. We're there, uh, under the radar perhaps, but we're there and we have Bible studies one-on-one. Uh, we have literature that we've produced, but to know how to pray, we've produced this prayer guide and you can go onto our website, you can use the QR code that will be up on the screen to find that resource sign up for our Jews for Jesus newsletter and we'll be able to help you to know how to pray for the work of Jews for Jesus. I am not without hope, even though this is the most difficult group that we've ever tried to reach, because five generations ago, my great-great-grandfather was the chief Haredi rabbi in Jatomar in the Ukraine, near Kiev, and his wife, became a follower of Jesus in the 1850s. And I'm here today as evidence that God can reach Haredi Jews because I'm descended from that community. And I believe that God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit. And we see a future that involves all of Israel turning and uh, responding uh, and that God will pour out his Holy Spirit on this unreached community group, I would ask you to join us in prayer for. And in fact, the harvest that we're talking about today kind of looks forward to that great event. And we've been talking about the three main festivals and you've gotten the first two. Passover is all about redemption. Pentecost, which was last week, is all about revelation, the revelation of God's Word. Uh, And then we have rejoicing. That's the theme of this amazing festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. And we find it also mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. And I wanted to just read to you verse 39 through 42. "'On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, "'when you have gathered in the produce of the land, "'you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. "'On the first day shall be a solemn rest. "'On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. "'And you shall take on the first day "'the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, Boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So there are in that passage two commands that, are, that make up the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles even to this day. And those, these three festivals, uh, as uh, we have been looking at them, are all harvest festivals. Uh, the first, Passover, is a harvest festival of the early wheat. Pentecost is a harvest festival of the fruits, the seven species. And this is a harvest, a final harvest, a final ingathering of the last harvest, the last wheat, the grapes, that are harvested and it looks forward as a final ingathering it's a, called the feast of ingathering because we are gathering in the crops and the interesting thing about this is that because these three festivals are all agricultural festivals they in, inevitably tied the Jewish people to the land that God had given to them to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob a land that is, of course, a controversial place to this very day that is still in dispute, but that you cannot deny from the Scriptures that God gave it to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so no matter where they have been scattered and are to this very day scattered to the four corners of the earth, Jewish people, by celebrating the biblical feast, would remember what is going on in the land that God had promised to give them. And so there has been this connection. And so this final harvest, this feast of rejoicing is calling upon us to first of all remember that connection. A command to remember all native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know or remember that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God, so the first command is we need to remember our redemptive past. We need to remember that God provided for us as we were wandering in the wilderness and 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 the the booth is the symbol of the festival. We have, it's called sukkah, a booth, a tabernacle. And that's exactly the more common name of the festival is uh, sukkot or tabernacles. And the second, uh, you can see here actually a picture of that booth. And uh, the booth is uh, three-sided and uh, a thatched roof And uh, some of the sides are very elaborate like this, hand painted with beautiful scenery on it. More often than not, it's not quite as elaborate as this one, but I've chosen that to show you how invested Israel is in remembering. And this booth, this sukkah, is to remind us of our wilderness wanderings and the way God provided for us. And you can see, if you can see there's fruit that is hanging uh, from the, oftentimes it's grapes or pomegranates, or whatever fruit may be harvesting in the, in the land of Israel, that is hanging from the thatched roof. And the command, according to the rabbis, is when you're dwelling in the booth, you're supposed to uh, be able to see the stars. And so there's this sense of being out there in the world. You know, I love to go backpacking. And there's a sense of, you know, being in the presence of God outside, out in the wilderness. Uh, You know, it's, 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 it's a refreshing time. And so Israel remembers God's provision in the wilderness. We remember the transient nature of life because we're dwelling not in our homes that are firmly established, but in these simple booths. Uh, we remember that this world is not our home, that we're just a passing through to remember that famous spiritual song. And so I think that it's good for believers in Jesus to celebrate in a way, to get out To remember that God provides all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Messiah Jesus. Sometimes we live for all the stuff we can accumulate under one or two mortgages, and we live in our houses, and especially during this last season of sheltering in place, we kind of get isolated, don't we? But God said to the children of Israel, get out of your homes. Get out of your rhythm of living in your homes and dwell in booths for seven days, and That's another aspect of the Feast of, of Tabernacles. It's the longest festival of all. And while we don't always have to sleep in the booth, what we're supposed to do is to go there, maybe to have a meal there, to invite guests to come in and to remember with us the way that God provided for us in the wilderness. And it's an amazing uh, story if you follow Israel through their wilderness wanderings. You know, the desert is a desolate place, and yet God provided for us. He led us by pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He provided manna, which means what is it? And that's exactly the question. When you see this look like coriander seed, but you rubbed it together and it created a paste that we could make bread for, six, enough for six days and a double portion on the sixth so that we wouldn't gather on the seventh day, the Sabbath. And God continued to demonstrate his faithfulness when we needed water. There was water that came from a rock and it was an amazing thing. Israel said that the rock traveled with Israel, and uh, they called it. The rabbis call it Miriam's Rock, and it bubbled up and flowed over. And they would say, "Spring up, O oh well, sing it!" And there was a whole, uh, you know, explanation of this by the rabbis. Well, you know what? Rabbi Saul of Tarsus had an explanation in First Corinthians chapter ten. He said that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ and there's a special connection to that rock and to that water that we'll get to in just a minute that Jesus himself pointed out when he was celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. But what a wonderful, it wasn't just enough that God delivered us from bondage and slavery in Egypt. It wasn't just enough that God gave us the law at Mount Sinai, his revelation, the Feast of Pentecost, but that he provided for us. And he promises to provide for us. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, but that God knows. it. he knows the numbers on your head. So you've come here today with a special need. Remember, God provides. He provides all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He did it for Israel in the wilderness. He can do it for you in New Jersey because he is a faithful and loving God. So the first command is to Remember, And the symbol that we use in order to remember is Sukkot, the tabernacle. So go outside sometime when you can. Maybe pitch a tent and remember God's faithfulness to provide for you wherever you live, whether it be an apartment or a house. This is his provision. This is his home. This world is not our home. And we're just a passing through on our way to an eternal destiny with the Lord if we know him. The second command found in the scriptures is a command to rejoice. And here is what God says to do to rejoice. He shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now the rabbis had to figure out what to do with this command and how to do it. And so we came up with what's called the lulav and the etrog. The lulav is the binding together of these uh, branches, willow, myrtle, and palm. And uh, we take this and the and the and the, the etrog, it's kind of like, it looks like a lemon, but it's, it's bigger than a lemon. And uh, some of you ladies who make fruitcake know that the citron is one of the important elements of the fruit that's added to that. That's what this etrog is. It's a citron. And it represents the kind of fruit that we're harvesting in the land of Israel. So with the lulav and the etrog, what we do to fulfill this command to rejoice as we go into the sukkah, the tabernacle, and we kind of do a little worship dance. We go, uh, we shake the lulav, we shake it, you know, this way, we shake it this way and this way. We do the hokey pokey and we turn ourselves about. Uh, no, but it's it, it's, a, it's a very tactical way of celebrating God's provision of the harvest. And uh, as we do this, we're really rejoicing, uh, singing, singing, uh, eating uh, products, fruits from the land, uh, cakes, uh, cheesecake is one of the things that we like to eat, Just, you know, uh, blintzes, which is about how you can gain 10 pounds in two minutes, but uh, you know, food is an important part of the celebration, the lulav and the etrog are an important part of the celebration, but isn't it interesting that you have to t- have, be commanded to rejoice, and that's exactly what God is commanding that we when we worship that we allow ourselves to experience the joy of his presence rejoice Rejoice, and in Hebrew, it's a double command. Rejoice, rejoice. And that's what Paul was saying when in Philippians, he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. He's perhaps reflecting on this very command of the scriptures, that we are to have joy and celebration. And we have to have that as well. We've had a lot of things going on in the world today that kind of rob us of our joy, and, uh, you know, we can walk around and feel as though the burdens of our lives and everybody carries their own burdens differently. But oftentimes we carry them on our face, don't we? When you walk around, uh, one of the things I love, I live in San Francisco and, and it's, it's become a really dark place for many, many reasons, which we don't want to go into today. But the fact of the matter is sometimes I come to places Like this church and I see a lot of people smiling and to me that's evidence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit which enlivens the heart. And it's not based upon circumstances. You can come into this sanctuary today carrying a burden but we can still stand up and sing and rejoice and Hodu Adonai Kitov, Kileolam Olam Chazdo. That's what you guys were singing. One of the most ancient songs of praise in Israel. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his love endures forever. And that is Israel's song. It's the song of those who know the Lord. Because we have been saved, because we have an eternal destiny, we can remember and we can rejoice. And we want our joy to be full And we want it to be an overflowing like Miriam's rock, which Paul tells us was Christ himself. We want the joy of the Lord to fill us. And that's really what this festival is all about. Remembering God's provision, rejoicing in that provision, and remembering that we have a destiny, a future. There's an in-gathering that's not just about wheat and about grapes, but about people as a harvest of souls to be had. And I'm praying for the Haredim to be part of that harvest, and I know that they will. But one of the amazing things about this festival is how Jesus himself celebrated it. Over the time as the temple was built, there was a a lot of uh, other aspects of worship that were added to the festival to help us to remember and to help us to rejoice. And so when the temple in Jerusalem became the focal point of the worship at the Feast of Tabernacles, and remember, this was one of the three festivals that the Jewish men were required to go up to, to celebrate. They were called Aliyah, which means to go up. And wherever you were in the the world, if you're going to Jerusalem from a biblical perspective, you're going up, and so Passover, men had to go to Jerusalem. Pentecost men had to go to Jerusalem. And of course, they would bring their families. We see even Jesus going up to celebrate uh, in the gospel accounts as a young boy with his family. Uh, but certainly, the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days were going up to Jerusalem to celebrate, to remember, and to rejoice. And so, this festival is an ingathering, not just a fruit not just of wheat, the final wheat, but it is an in that looks forward to that. And Jesus took the occasion in John chapter seven to celebrate, and he, in John chapter seven we read about the great day of the feast. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water, Mayim Chaim, will flow from within him. John 7, 37 and 38. Now in John chapter 7 and verse 1 and 2, we find that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The last day, the great day of the feast, is the seventh day. It's called in Hebrew Hoshana Rabbah, the great salvation. And one of the things that developed in the temple worship, what was was called the water drawing ceremony. There's a whole tractate in the Talmud, the rabbinic commentary on scripture that tells about how this happened. It was a grand procession. The priests and the Levites would go from the temple in great celebration with music and instruments and singing down to the pool of Siloam. And there they would fill up these giant cisterns of water and they would come and march, march around in great procession the, the, uh, the altar and they would pour out the water And so you can imagine this water just pouring out all over. And the the water drawing, the water pouring ceremony, the water would flow from the altar down the steps, out into the court of the women, all the way out to the court of the Gentiles. Everybody would see this water, these giant cisterns, providing water all over the temple flooring. And as that was happening, the priests would dance and sing from Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2. With joy, we draw water from the wells of Yeshua, salvation. So they're singing and they're singing Yeshua. And what does Jesus do? He stands up in the midst of that ceremony at the High point of that celebration and says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me. (laughs) And out of his innermost being will flow mayim chayim, rivers of living water. What an amazing use of this wonderful ceremony that developed Jesus uses to point to his own claim. And remember what Paul told us about the rock, the rock that bubbled up this water that was provided in the wilderness. Jesus says, guess what? I'm the fulfillment of that water. If you really want water that, like he said to the woman at the Samaritan well, if you really want water that makes so you don't have to thirst anymore, then come to me. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But what a beautiful image that comes right from this feast of tabernacles that Jesus fulfilled. There's one more amazing development that occurred in the uh, worship in the temple, and it was called not the water-drawing ceremony, that's the first one, but the illumination ceremony. So at the final day, at the end of that day, in the temple, there was at night a celebration that kind of like is the 4th of July, uh, the Harvest Fest and New Year's Eve, and uh, what the what would happen was there was a giant. Uh, actually, let's go to there. It is the illumination ceremony. See, this is a, a, a candelabra. It's a seven-branched menorah that stood in the temple as a demonstration of the light of God's presence in the midst of the people. It was a symbol that picked up on the pillar of fire that. F- Uh, led Israel through the wilderness, but it was also a symbol of God's eternal presence in the holy place. Well, what would happen on this last night after the water drawing ceremony was the illumination ceremony. And there were four menorahs that were outside and placed especially in the temple courtyard. And these were lit uh, in such a powerful way That there was uh, uh, like a daytime, even though it was the night sky that the people were celebrating with. So this illumination ceremony was really quite something to behold for Israel. And it demonstrated God's faithfulness in leading them through the wilderness. But it was so amazing to be in the temple at night and for the illumination to make it seem like it was day. And what the rabbis say is if you have not attended the illumination ceremony in the temple in Jerusalem, you have never known true joy. <laughs> and I, I, I tell you that the, the stories of what it used to be like in the temple, there were rabbis who were jugglers and they would juggle and there was food and there were parties and the kids were allowed to play. It was just a wonderful celebration and This illumination was the centerpiece of that concluding ceremony. And of course, while in the Gospel of John, we have this interesting story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery that comes in the middle of that, most texts, some don't have that story there. But if you take that story away, which I'm sure happened and happened at that time, you find how the comment that Jesus made about the water drawing ceremony, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me, is immediately followed later that day by this, the illumination ceremony, where again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. Can you see how Jesus chose to use this festival to point to his salva- salvation, to point to his redemptive purpose? And even though these particular ceremonies were not inscripturated in the Older Testament, they were developed later. Nevertheless, Jesus found very helpful to use these to point to his gospel message there in the temple. And so while Jesus' words really point to what we knew was happening if we study the literature of that time, this is no longer occurring. Jesus himself has become the fulfillment of what was happening in the temple, both in the sacrifices and in the symbols of God's joy and of God's uh, Holy Spirit coming, this the 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 Mayim Chayim. He was that rock that Paul tells us, and he is the light of the world. And how I long for my people, who in just a matter of days are going to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. How I long for them to know that Jesus is the one who illumines. He is the one who saves. He is the one who gives. Nothing but joy, pure joy. And I ask you to pray. For that. And I absolutely believe that God is going to accomplish that. We are beginning to see the Holy Spirit work in a powerful way in the land of Israel. You know, you can see God's Spirit at work in the Jewish people almost geographically in our day. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Up until then, most people in the Jewish community did not really. Uh, understand that it was okay to be Jewish and believe in Jesus because they didn't know too many Jews who believed in Jesus, and all of a sudden God poured out a spirit and Especially here in North America, there were literally thousands of young Jewish people who came to faith in Jesus, and the ministry of Jews for Jesus was born out of that movement of the Holy Spirit. We're next year celebrating the 50th anniversary of our ministry, which began in September 1973. (laughs) Since that time, God has raised up a, a witness, not only here in North America, but in the late 80s and early 1990s, the Holy Spirit fell on what had been the Iron Curtain. You remember the Iron Curtain came down. There were large numbers of Jews who were living in the former Soviet Union, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, And God gave us as a ministry the opportunity to go there. And we saw tens of thousands of Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus in those countries. And to this very day, there is a continuing work of God in those countries. And actually, when the war broke out in Ukraine in February 24th, we had 19 missionary families, Ukrainian Jewish missionary families who were working in Kiev and in Odessa. And pray for them because many of them are refugees outside of the country. Many of them, especially the men, are in the country and continuing to minister. I went there in May. And I want to tell you, uh, I'll never forget my experience. There was uh, the leader of our Kiev Branch, who was telling me about both his heartbreak over the loss of life, some of those who we'd led to the Lord dying on the front lines in the battle against the Russians. And we have Russian staff. And so imagine the complexity of the relationship between our staff in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Odessa, and Kiev. It's really a complex time. And yet... Tolik, the leader of that branch in in Kiev, said to me, David, it's a bad time for Ukraine, but it's a good time for the gospel. And we continue to see God at work. But in Israel right now is where we're really beginning to see the openness, similar to what we saw here in America in the late 60s and early 70s with a revival. We are having more Israeli Jews coming to faith in Jesus and coming to want to serve with us than we know what to do with. Right now there are 18, praise the Lord, there are 18 young Israeli Jewish people who are traveling around in different parts of the world at what's called the Hummus Trail. You know that sabra hummus that you like to dip your your chips in? Well, hummus is is, uh, an Israeli food, and uh, these young people, after they get out of the Israeli Defense Force, serving there for three years for boys and two years for girls, they go to places like India or Latin America where there are beautiful outdoor opportunities to travel, to hike, cheap food, and unfortunately, cheap drugs, because they're on a quest to discover themselves. Well, we've been sending teams of our young people along the Chumas Trail to be a witness. And every year we see people coming to faith as a result of our being there to share the hope of the gospel. And this is evidence of the fact that God is at work. Uh, Chaim and Vered Birnbaum are part of what really the Feast of Tabernacles points to. And if you're more interested in hearing about what they're doing and what we're doing around the world, I just want to say that there is a literature table out to my right and some of it is free literature. You can help yourself. Some of it's not so free literature. Uh, Like, for example, you might be interested in this book that I wrote, published by Moody, Christ and the Feast of Tabernacles. So you can take me home with you and a lot more of the information that you've been learning about today. But as I said before, the future is where this final harvest is pointing to. And the imagery that we see in the Feast of Tabernacles as it's been celebrated throughout the Older Testament and even into the New Testament with Jesus in John chapter 7 actually points to a final and future harvest. We're not just talking about an ingathering of fruit and of wheat, but an ingathering of souls. And the book of Revelation really does paint a picture of heaven kind of like being a great feast of celebration of harvest uh, and so this future kingdom uh, is project, projected in the book of Revelation behold the dwelling place the skina in Greek uh, which is used in the, in the Greek translation of the older testament Sukkot uh, The the, the Feast of Tabernacles, behold, the the, the tabernacle of God is with man. The booth of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The amazing thing about the Feast of Tabernacles is it's the only one of all of the seven that are found in the book of Leviticus 23 that is enjoined not just upon Israel, but upon the nations. And in Zechariah chapter 12, we see, See that the nations are invited to come up after the return of Messiah to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. So I say, let's get the party started. And you know what? Peter... <laughs> Peter was uh, kind of evidencing that hopefulness as well. You'll remember when Jesus brought Peter, James, and John up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and he saw the Lord transfigured before him and Peter's gotten a lot of a bad rap for what he says. But do you remember what he said? Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's build three booths. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And just recently I heard a pastor say, open mouth, insert foot but you know what? Peter knew about the Feast of Tabernacles. He knew about the booths. He knew about Zechariah 12. He saw the Lord with Elijah and Moses transfigured the the, the glory of God in the midst and, you know, so much so that they fell to their faces. And he said, this is heaven on earth. This is happening. Let's get the party started. He was off by a couple thousand years, right? But he had the right idea. I'm off by a lot less, But I long for that day, don't you? I long for that final in-gathering. And that's what this feast is all about, to encourage us to remember this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Let's keep our focus on the Lord himself. Amen? God bless you. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of the feasts, redemption, revelation, and rejoicing. We thank you, Lord, that they've led Israel and your people, the body of Christ, to look up from the passing, the temporal, and to see the eternal in even our daily lives, in the harvest. And in this final fall feast, this in-gathering, Lord, we long for an ingathering of souls, and we want to pray together as a body here in New Jersey for the ingathering of the Haredim. And we pray especially, Lord, for the community of Lakewood. Lord, there's such zeal for you, but not in accordance with knowledge. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would begin to illumine the minds and hearts of those so that all of us together eventually through the power of your Holy Spirit can go to Zion (laughs) to celebrate in Jerusalem our great God and our glorious King, our Messiah Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.